At the age of seven, a girl named Azamat was taken by her own family members to the home of a strange lady who cut her genitals. They were following an ancient religious tradition and Azamat was too young to know words like clitoris or consent. She could do nothing. That girl was me. At the age of 11, my name was suddenly changed from Azamat to Arifa. Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. According to UNICEF data, at least 200 million girls and women across 30 countries have suffered female genital mutilation, also known as female genital cutting or FGC. If they were to form a country, it would be the sixth most populous in the world. This year, the UN estimated that 4.1 million girls around the world are at risk of FGC. In India, it is practiced mainly by the Daudi Bora community and mainly by untrained women using rudimentary blades and knives. The Bora community is roughly 2 million strong and between 75 to 80% of its women are estimated to have been subjected to FGC. They are looking at an alarming crime against humanity that needs our urgent attention. All Indians Matter We have on the show Arifa Jodhi, a journalist, feminist and activist speaking out against the practice of FGC, of which she is a survivor herself. She currently works as a reporter at Scroll.in and is a co-founder of Sahio, an organization working to end FGC in Asian communities through education, storytelling and community engagement. In 2019, she teamed up with filmmaker and Sahio co-founder Priya Goswami to create Mumkin, an artificial intelligence-driven app that enables difficult conversations on FGC and other issues of gender-based violence. Welcome to the show, Arifa. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Ashraf. Arifa, the practice of FGC is highly secretive to the extent that most people don't even know about it. Could you explain what FGC is and how exactly it's carried out? Sure. Yeah, I mean, of course, that is the basic. Um, The term female genital cutting, as uh, the name implies, involves cutting either in part or all of a female's uh, external genitals for non-medical reasons. Essentially, that would mean for cultural reasons. And that is crucial. Um, So as we know, uh, I mean, one mustn't assume that everybody understands or knows female genital anatomy. But so I can kind of just explain it very uh, quickly. Uh, Everybody knows uh, the vagina, where it's located. And then above that, you have the urethra for uh, urination. And then above that, you have this little button uh, of, you know, uh, flesh, uh, which um, it's often referred to as the button. That is the clitoris. It's basically a bundle of like more than 8,000 nerve endings. And uh, that is the tip of the clitoris. The rest of the clitoris is a large internal organ. uh, And uh, the purpose of the clitoris is solely sexual pleasure. And the clitoris is protected by tissues, which, you know, known as the prepuce tissue. And that is called the clitoral hood. So the purpose of the clitoral hood is to protect the clitoris from abrasions, injuries, overstimulation. And uh, then, of course, around the vagina, you have the labia, the inner labia and the outer labia. And uh, there are different types of female genital cutting. Uh, The most, uh, I mean, I think what people identify as female genital mutilation, what is most commonly recognized around the world is actually the least uh, common form of uh, FGC. 
uh, which is um, uh, and that is called that's called infibulation, and that is practiced by uh, some communities in uh, Western Africa um, and, and in some portions of Africa, some specific communities, and that they cut off a lot. You know, they cut off the the inner labia parts of the outer labia. They often stitch up the labia and leave very little room for urination and menstruation. And I'm sorry, I should put out a trigger warning here for those who may be uncomfortable uh, listening to this. And it is definitely very, very um, scary uh, and horrifying. Uh, that is- yeah, sounds, sounds horrific, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the uh, slightly less severe form, um, which involves, uh, it's called incision, and that in involves cutting uh, the clitoris, cutting a part of the inner labia. Um, and that is what the World Health Organization was cl would classify as type 2. Infibulation is type 3. What is practiced in India and in my community in particular and what I have been through is what is type or called as type 1 FGC. That is um, supposedly the mildest form. Uh, and I'm kind, if you could see me, you'd see I'm putting quote unquote like air quotes around it. It's uh, the mildest form of FGC. And uh, it's also uh, known as circumcision. And um, it, uh, I mean, uh, there's a lot of debate on the terminology, but this involves uh, basically um, cutting either a part of the clitoral hood um, uh, or, or all of the clitoral hood or the clitoral hood and a part of the clitoris. There are subtypes. And uh, in the community that um, I come from, the Daudi Bora community of India, uh, it is uh, they claim to practice cutting of the clitoral hood. Uh, of course, in my uh, you know experience as an activist, I've come across many people who have experienced more severe cuts than that, um, and uh, their stories are not acknowledged. In fact, I we should uh, I should let listeners know that uh, none of this is done under any sort of medical supervision at all. Um, actually, you know, it's that is changing. That is, uh, and we can probably come to that later. The the kind of the scary aspect of. Uh, female genital cutting becoming medicalized. Um, that is a global trend. And uh, it is very worrying because when uh, by medicalized, I mean people going more and more to uh, medical practitioners, doctors, nurses, etc. And getting it done, getting the cutting done from them uh, because they feel that is safer, that is more hygienic, and they will make sure that you know nothing goes wrong, except that it's still a non-medical practice. It can't be legal, surely. Uh, it's it's different in different parts of the world. So um, there are some countries where they did you know legalize uh, medicalized female genital cutting, uh, like Indonesia, and, and I think for a brief while even Malaysia. But um, uh, you know, we I'm I'm sure you're going to be asking me at some point about the laws and in India. Yes, I will. <laughs> But uh, Arifa, how prevalent is FGC in India? Um, it is. Uh, so the thing is, in the Daudi Bora community, uh, which for a long time we thought it's the only community in India which practices this, um, and the population of the Daudi Boras is around, uh, I don't have an exact figure, but... Uh, I think it's estimated at 2 million. Estimated also. at 2 million worldwide and around 50% in India some, and the rest are diaspora groups. So the, the, the Daudi Bora community and other much smaller sects of Boras, they practice it, um, you know, almost like when we had done a survey, my organization had done a survey back in uh, 2017, uh, we found that 80% uh, of our respondents were women 
uh, were and, and how is it justified um it so there are so many reasons given for it and you will find this globally that in any community at any given point of time there will be multiple different reasons given for it so the most common reasons given uh in, in the bora community uh, firstly and uh, you know just the most common reason given is that it's culture it's tradition it's part of the religion so essentially it comes down to you know this is what we have to do so we just do it without questioning and then uh, so it, so that is what makes it a social norm and then the second most common reason that we found in our survey was that um, people say it is done to curb sexual desire to moderate a woman's sexual urge to prevent her from having um, premarital affairs and extramarital affairs so essentially sexual control and then there are other reasons given as well hygiene is one of the reasons given um some there are some notions out there that it actually you know for health it prevents certain kinds of uh, infections and diseases um uh, there isn't really any scientific basis to that um then marriageability is given you know as a reason just the idea of this is what is required to be a good bora girl um so and these are kind of common reasons globally you will find in any community and the irony is now um you know there is another reason being propagated um which is that it is it actually enhances sexual pleasure completely the opposite of controlling sexual desire uh they uh, you know there are now people uh, in the community try to say that you know if you cut the clitoral hood you're actually exposing the clitoris uh, and therefore making it uh, easier to have orgasms and so it enhances sexual pleasure and that is ridiculous at so many levels because um you know uh, i mean forget the fact whether you know whether it actually have you know has any scientific uh, basis to that but the idea of sexualizing a a 7 year old child and uh, yeah mind you that is the age at which it is done in the bora community uh, uh girls are cut at the age of 7 in other communities in asia girls are often cut at uh, you know as infants 40 days uh, 4 months you know 6 months right so there's no consent involved but you're sexualizing a little girl uh, and you know trying to influence her future sexual life so it's really warped and our own i mean i mean the religious uh, the spiritual leader of our community um he had mentioned a few years ago that this is uh, uh fgc that it's known as khatna or khafs in the community female circumcision is really called khafs and he said that uh, khafs is done for uh, spiritual purity just like male circumcision and the idea that in order to achieve spiritual purity you need to cut that part of the body is if you really it makes you wonder why you know why that part of the body it really comes down to sexual control absolutely is there any justification at all in the religious texts um not in the quran in fact the quran does not mention any kind of circumcision at all uh circumcisions are mentioned in um various different hadiths uh, which uh, i i mean the way to explain a hadith would be uh, religious text kind of explaining the teachings of the prophet etc and um, and so the hadiths have been written over the years by different scholars of islam and uh, the hadiths uh, there are a number of hadiths that do mention uh, uh, male circumcision and then some that also mention female circumcision and uh, most of those hadiths are really disputed you know the authenticity 
And if one looks at specifically the Bora community, mm-hmm. um, and oh, before I get to that, it's important to emphasize here that, you know, female circumcision is not practiced by all Muslims. It's really, uh, it's a misconception to associate it with Islam. In fact, globally, there are many communities who practice it, uh, including uh, Christians, Jews, um, just across the board, different communities that practice it. It's not an Islamic practice at all. It may be... It's in fact, for me, it lies in culture, the roots lie in cultures rather than... Absolutely, religions. yeah. And so look at India. I mean, uh, the, you know, major- the vast majority of Indian Muslims don't practice it at all. Um, so right. in the Bora community, there is a particular text called Daimul Islam, uh, which means the pillars of Islam. And um, it, uh, that, uh, I, I hope I got the translation correct, um, but um, it was a 10th, 10th century book uh, of jurisprudence uh, in which um, I, I think a lot of Shias follow that book and the Boras are a Shia sect. So that book mentions uh, uh, the female circumcision as something, I mean, there's a quote uh, attributed to the prophet uh, where he said, you know, he's telling a woman who used to circumcise that, you know, she should not uh, cut too much because that would be harmful. But, uh, you know, to uh, that they should be cut uh, by age seven or something like that. Um, or So, yeah, I mean, I to me, that really just indicates that this was a pre-Islamic practice. It existed for years before Islam and, um, you know, a, a lot of new religions, right. when they form, they incorporate a lot of local customs and traditions. Um, and, you know, that does not make it a hard and fast Absolutely. rule. If it's not like the Quran, it's not, a, it's not an Islamic practice. Absolutely. I felt shock and immense anger. I was so angry for weeks and weeks. It was very difficult for me to come to terms with the fact that a piece of my body had been cut off without my permission. I missed that piece of my body. I grieved over it and I mourned it. It hurt me deeply that no matter what I did or how I made myself feel better, I would not get that piece of my body back. And Alpha, like you said, you know, there's a question of control over sexuality. There's a question of consent. But uh, tell us a little bit about the impacts of FGC on the physical and psychological health of victims yeah that's um, that's most the most important question really um it it varies so the impact can vary depending on the severity of the cut and the conditions in which it took place um you know what was told to the girl when she was getting cut um at least in my in my experience like when when you look at seven-year-old girls you know they're not infants, so they, they're often aware of what's happening and many of them are trying to resist. You know, they're, they're being held down forcefully and they're, you know, some, sometimes t- trying to kick and they're screaming. So there, there are many cases that have gone wrong. There are many cases that, I mean, the whole practice is wrong, but, you know, specifically cases that have gone wrong, more was cut than was needed to and that caused more physical damage uh, and not to mention psychological damage. But broadly... Uh, I will focus uh, the impact of uh, the most severe types of FGC, uh, uh, you know, type two, type three, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into that because that is really, really, uh, it it can go to any lens, you know, like it can even cause Mm -hmm. um, death and uh, lots of infections and 
problems with childbirth and all of that. But it's purely on type one, the kind that is practiced in India. Uh, I would say um, it it depends. We have met people who don't remember the cut at all and claim they have not been affected in any way at all. And uh, that's great for them. But then there are also others who still have physical scars, who still, uh, you know, experience pain in the genital area, uh, have frequent infections. There are uh, people whose sexual lives are impacted and, you know, uh, 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 quite physically in the sense that they find it very difficult to get intimate with somebody or they find it painful. Um, And then all of it also ties in the psychological impact is also impacts. Uh, the sexual experience because when you you feel betrayed by your mother or grandmother who took mm-hmm. you to get cut uh, you feel resentful of them you you know that the trauma is there of the memory so uh, you know that also a lot of people find it difficult to get over that um and uh, we have met so many people who you know are still struggling as adults to uh, you know having trust issues with their mothers and uh, just still dealing with the trauma now, decades after the act in fact and possibly lasting a lifetime yes arifa is the problem recognized internationally uh, let's say when do does the un have anything to say about it i know you mentioned the who briefly but could you tell us more about that sure um so uh, all un united nations agencies all classify it as a violation of human rights child rights women's rights um so uh, you know there are many countries including india uh, who have signed uh, conventions and declarations in which uh, you know female genital cutting is recognized as a violation of women's rights and um, that is as far as the un goes um the un has compiled uh, you know statistics based on official studies done in 30 countries which is where they get the figure of you know 200 million women and women and girls around the world have been cut but that around the world is a reference to 30 countries not to uh, all countries so india is not included um, you know so i am not included in that number so the actual number is much higher uh, arifa in your work in this field have you had any engagement with the indian government regarding this um uh, not me directly but yes the 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 movement uh, against this practice in india uh, you know there have been attempts to speak to um, uh, the government uh, ministry of women and uh, child development uh, to help them you know recognize the significance of this practice and the need to act against it uh, the uh, petition um, there, there's a petition on change.org by uh, we speak out which is uh, you know speak out against fgms a, a, a group um 17 of us are signatories on that uh, petition as survivors and uh, that is addressed to uh, the government appealing for a ban on this practice and um, the government has kind of taken flip flopped on its stand on this because they have at some point recognized the practice and said that you know it can be considered a crime under uh, the uh, law against child sexual abuse or you know under sections of the ipc but uh, it also uh, in there is a supreme court case currently uh, underway uh, we're not sure when the next hearings and all will be held but there is a public interest litigation filed in the supreme court um, uh, to are uh, demanding a ban on this practice and then there you know a counter petition filed by members of the community defending the practice and saying you know they they have a right to practice uh, fgc under uh, the constitutional right to freedom of religion 
and so they've made it a matter of freedom of religion and that is the, what the court will be hearing and at some point the government had kind of uh, uh, also tried to deny that this happens in india so we're not sure exactly what stand uh, the government is taking on this at the moment uh, but the supreme court uh, you know we're waiting for the supreme court uh, verdict on this but do you have an idea of uh, when you can expect the verdict or uh, it is just a little up in the air right now uh, right now it's all up in the air we've no idea i mean i think the supreme court is due to hear a group of petitions dealing with freedom of religion versus women's rights so this includes you know entry to the uh, women's entry to sabri mela temple and uh, women's entry to mosques and other things like that alpha uh, in the past few years the issue has also gotten internationalized in the sense that uh, i think three daudi boras were sentenced to 15 months in jail in 2016 in australia for the practice two doctors in detroit were also arrested in 2017 uh, have these cases helped the anti fgc cause oh for sure i mean um when the case in ha- the the 2015 16 case in australia uh you know that really coincided with the birth of the very public movement against this that you know i have been a part of and uh, you know some uh, some of my other colleagues have been a part of and uh, we uh, you know so when the case happened in australia and the verdict came out we also really worked hard to ensure that it got the publicity that it needed and it was brought to light that this was happening in you know to, to uh, in australia and that it was you know daudi boras were involved in it otherwise you know it wouldn't really have gotten much attention and um, yeah and then kind of you know we've really been pushing since then and what happened in the us um, uh, although you know nobody here was none of us in the movement against fgc were really involved um, it has brought a lot of attention uh, in the media to this practice which ended up helping a lot of women come out and speak for, you know come forward speak their own stories and break the silence so it's kind of a mixed bag it has these cases have uh, brought attention to this practice mm-hmm. uh, it has um, sort of reinforced the movement in a way it has um, you know the, the movement has also brought attention to these cases and vice versa and um, it has also led to some people becoming really silent and you know um becoming super defensive about this practice as well so uh, and we are uh, but it this was necessary you know we, this really needed to come out and it has absolutely but if there's clearly a need for a law against FG, fgc um, yeah. on the flip side having a law doesn't automatically guarantee the safety of young girls after all this is a practice that has been underground anyway law or no law so what's the way out no exactly very perfectly uh, accurate point that you said right i mean there are laws against uh, dowry there are laws against domestic violence uh, that does not mean that those practices have come to an end uh, so as much as the law is necessary uh, for anybody who needs to seek refuge in uh, the law uh, and you know to seek protection and to get justice the law is required and it also can serve as a very effective um, deterrent for people you know who want to be law abiding citizens um, but when it comes to cultural practices when it comes to deeply entrenched social norms it is very difficult uh, for communities to let go of them um, and 
uh, then you know that takes precedence over everything right. else. So that's what makes the practice go underground. So in order to really effectively end this uh, uh, kind of you know and this social norm and other kinds of harmful social norms, you you know a law independently cannot work. It has to be accompanied by a really um, robust community you know movement within the community. The the you know it. Change cannot be imposed from the outside, you know, top down. It has to come from within. That's right. So do you think uh, including it in, let's say, the sex education syllabus or anything like that would help? Absolutely. I mean, uh, first, having a sex education syllabus itself would be a big step for most Indian schools. That's right, yeah. And then for sure, you know, uh, teaching ideas of, um, you know, hopefully we come to a stage where sex education is not moralistic, but focuses on uh, ideas of consent, ideas of the integrity of, the, uh, of uh, a person's body, of a child's body, and, uh, you know, we're able to uh, explain and kind of uh, make people more aware and situate this practice within uh, those discourses. Absolutely. Let's talk about your movement for a second. Uh, how has your movement evolved uh, over the years and what's next for it? Um, the movement really, I mean, uh, one can go back a long time to, you know, the early like anonymous women who tried to speak out, um, you know, and without them, we wouldn't have known about it and, uh, you know, or known how to act. Um, for me, I would say it began in 2011 when an anonymous woman from the community uh, launched a change.org petition mm-hmm. and that maybe is still anonymous, but, uh, her petition was addressed to the uh, leader of our community urging him to end this practice. And at that time, it got some media attention. And uh, in 2011, I had already, you know, I was working, I just started work. I was, um, I had already had like a lot of confrontations with my mother about, uh, you know, her taking me to get cut. And I had sort of uh, grown out of my sense of resentment towards my mother. And I had realized that, you know, she too has gone through this practice and she as an individual is not a, uh, not to blame this. You know, I had uh, by then placed the blame on uh, this entire system of, uh, you know, the uh, cultural traditions and patriarchal traditions. And uh, when this petition came out anonymously, I realized I was absolutely ready and eager to talk in public. So uh, that's how I started doing it. And then for me, then that led, you know, one thing led to another. Uh, uh, speaking out publicly helped me, uh, you know, connect with and help, uh, help other women connect with me. And then gradually, you know, we were over the years became uh, a gr- larger and larger groups of women who were speaking out mm-hmm. and who were, um, you know, coming together and trying to think of what could be done. And so that's how Sayo was born with with five co-founders who felt passionately about this and who were all individually in their capacity. You know, we have two filmmakers, uh, the the first uh, documentary film on this subject in India was made by my co-founder Priya Goswami. Um, So a lot of, uh, you know, like a lot of individual action then kind of grouped together and became collective action. Sayo was born, um, uh, there's another NGO called uh, We Speak Out, they were born. And um, yeah, the, the movement just kind of grew after that. And it really speaks to the power of breaking the silence. When you break the silence, then it really helps others to also break their silence. And then you can come together and do something. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Uh, Arifa, you hail from the Daudipura community yourself. I mean, it's a small community. It's a closely knit community. Have you had any backlash from the clergy or from other community members uh, about your work? Oh, for sure, there has been backlash. Um, uh, it, the thing is, uh, you know, communities um, by definition, especially small communities, by definition, they uh, tend to stick together. They tend to be really protective of their norms and customs and traditions, and uh, are also by definition resistant to change. And uh, that's exactly what happened, right? Um, And when we are talking about patriarchal communities, so when women speak up in public about their private genitals, that becomes a problem. Um, So uh, we have faced uh, backlash, you know, uh, of course, uh, besides online trolling, which happens a lot, um, you know, there have, um, uh, there there has been a, uh, I won't get into the details, but, there have been attempts to silence a lot of people who have spoken out. Um, maybe not me personally, but you know, at the level of one's family, larger relatives, one's mosque, and then you know, uh, at the clergy level, uh, there are people in the movement who would have maybe wanted to speak out publicly, but are not able to because uh, they are afraid of you know their families being excommunicated or they have faced a lot of pressure from their relatives or from the mosque, you know, they've been faced humiliation in public. So it, it becomes difficult to speak out. But, you know, encouraging thing is that despite all of this, more and more people are speaking out. Absolutely. Arifa, this is an issue that's ultimately grounded in patriarchy, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. I learned about the practice of FGMC because it occurs in Uganda where I was placed. I was so shocked when I found out that it still happens in some communities around the globe including the one my sister and I were raised in. My mom told me that my sister had been cut, but I was too afraid to ask her about it. Finally, I decided to call her from my walled-off compound in Uganda. She told me her story in all its detail. I was at a loss for words. So therefore, the next important question really is that given that it's grounded in patriarchy, what role can men play? to stamp out this practice is just the same as you know what role can men play in feminism the thing is we're all in this together uh when we look at the well-being of our communities as a whole when you uh, an individual's well-being is tied to the well-being of everybody and uh, you know pay, uh, uh, stamping out patriarchy is not and cannot be the responsibility only of uh, women because uh, you know it is not about men versus women it is about uh, a system that enables um, uh, the oppression uh, and uh, of one gender uh, more than the oppression of the other. And men are affected too. Uh, husbands are affected when their wives are cut and they're not able to have, uh, you know, proper sexual relations. Uh, uh, fathers, so many fathers are actually more open uh, to the idea of, uh, you know, changing the social norm and ending this practice than the women because uh, traditionally women that is the role of women in patriarchy to carry forward these uh, rules and norms that have been laid down by men uh, so you know we think even at a family level uh, you know uh, within patriarchy when men take a stand uh, it is kind of uh, heard more than when women try to take a stand so you know both ways we cannot do this without uh, male allies Absolutely. Arifa, how do survivors, or even those who have not undergone the same fate but want to help, how do they reach out to you? What kind of help can they 
extent? Um, so we have, uh, so um, the organization I work with, Sayu, we have an, um, a website, we are on social media, we are quite accessible, anybody can write to us and they do. That's how a lot of survivors reach out to us and, uh, uh, you know, seek help in different ways. A lot of them want to then, we have a blog on which a lot of survivors choose to share their stories, either anonymously or with their names. And uh, uh, we have uh, people who volunteer their time to help the movement. Uh, So we have a pretty uh, good uh, volunteer program with volunteers from all over the world. And uh, so, and, you know, most importantly, like people can just help this movement by talking and, uh, you know, really just having conversations with others about this practice. And we, in fact, uh, uh, my uh, Sayo co-founder Priya and I, we, uh, since the past year, we basically worked to create an app called Mumkin, which uh, it, the whole point of this Mumkin app is to make these kind of difficult conversations possible. So, uh, uh, you know, we use AI technology to help um, you, you know, help survivors and allies really learn how to have these kind of conversations on a topic like female genital cutting with their loved ones who may not agree with them. That's right. So if people want to reach you, they can download the Mumkin app or uh, what, what about the URL? Is there a URL? people? They can reach out to us on email or uh, through sayo.com. Uh, that is, um, I can spell it out. It's S-A-H-I-Y-O. Yes. Sahiyo. It actually means um, uh, female friends. Uh, in in Bori Gujarati, so that's s a h i y o dot com, uh, and uh, yeah, on our website, our contact details are there. Our volunteer application forms are there. Uh, there, yeah, and we we're on social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we're at the rate Sayo Voices, so you can reach out to us in any way. Absolutely, I encourage all listeners to do just that. Arifa, thanks so much for being part of the show. FGC is a human rights issue, the existence of which is rarely even acknowledged. So Arifa, thank you for throwing light on it and helping listeners understand how they can help. Thank you so much. And honestly, like, um, I'm really glad that uh, you provided me with this platform to uh, talk about this subject. And the only thing I would really like to tell people is, you know, just, just leave children's genitals alone. It's not too much of a big thing to ask. Absolutely. And more power to you, Arifa. And uh, thank you all for listening. The audio clips in the episode are part of the Voices to End FGMC project, a joint collaboration between Sahio and Story Center. Please visit www.allindiansmatter.in. That's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-M-A-T-T-E-R.in for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer. That's A-S-H-R-A-F-E-N-G-I-N-W-E-R. And All Indians Count, that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-C-O-U-N-T. Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Catch you again soon. Idea Blue Studios.